Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 37 of the Essential X Labs, where uh, it's a busy day today. This is kind of an early show that I'm trying to uh, make sure that I fit in. Um, I found out that uh, the dentist is able to fit me in for an emergency crown today. Uh, the crown wasn't supposed to go in for a little while, but um, man, my mouth hurts. So they were able to uh, to move it up here. So having the second of three crowns I need put in uh, today. So kind of kind of looking forward to it. Kind of not looking forward to it. But uh, in any event, um, we have a we have a book to discuss today, and I wanted to make sure I got this in before I could, uh, you know, not speak. You know, you know how it is. You know how it is. Anyway, let's get into it here. This is X Men number twenty seven, December nineteen sixty six, cover date. So we are almost into nineteen sixty seven. How about that? Today our story is called Reenter the Mimic, written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Werner Roth. Inks, Dick Ayers, Letters, Sam Rosen, Edit, Stan Lee, cover price, 12 cents American. Now we open, uh, and medius res, is that the word we use here? Uh, it's sometime like halfway through the story. It's like not even like the Silver Age spoilery splash here. This is like literally, we're, we're in the middle of the story here. And uh, we're not picking up where we left off, of course. Instead, we are opening with the X-Men, which includes Gene, but not Warren here. Battling with the menace of the mimic, and uh, well, to take a line from the theme song to original recipe X lapsed. Well, how did we get here? Well, we'll eventually find out. Just not right this minute. Instead, we're gonna watch as the X Men and the mimic get into a big old fight. Now, rather than going blow by blow, because I guess we could, but uh, we won't. Uh, let me just say that the mimic wipes the floor with them here. He utilizes each of the X-Men's powers against them, including an attempt at confusing them by using some Xavierific telepathy. And this goes on for about five pages. Anytime it looks as though our heroes have gained the upper hand, old Cal Rankin hits him with a checkmate, and at the end of the day, the mimic stands triumphant. So again, how did we get here? Well, Marvelites, we're going to have to turn back the clock to the X-Men returning to the mansion from San Rico and their senses-shattering battle with uh, Kukul Khan. If you recall, the Angel was in a pretty bad way thanks to an accidental optic blast to the back. Cyclops, Beast, and Iceman carry Warren in on a stretcher while Professor X directs traffic. Now, Scott, we know Scott's got guilt issues here. He feels very, very guilty which Xavier says that he can sense even without reading his thoughts without permission, which, I mean, he probably did that anyway. Angel is writhing and muttering, and he tells Scott not to blame himself, and he apologizes for accusing him of zapping him on purpose at the end of last issue. If you remember, Warren was like, uh, you know, you, you did this on purpose because we both love Jean, yada, yada, yada. Here, I guess, cooler heads are finally starting to prevail. So we jump to Xavier's study, where he uses a stethoscope to see whether or not Warren will ever fly again. Okay, I mean, that's, uh, that's doctorish, I guess. I don't know how, what that has to do with, with wings, but uh, I guess we'll, we'll allow it. I don't have a, uh, I don't have a medical uh, you know, degree or anything like that, and I'm certainly not a, uh, a mutant telepath. So what do I know? Now, he promises that he'll be completely honest with Angel as soon as he knows the deal. Outside the study, Scott does what he does best, which is to say he broods. Iceman and Beast wonder if they should approach him, but uh, ultimately decide against it. 
Hours later, the professor emerges with the news that Warren will soar once more, but he's going to need a lot of rest first. Oh, and also, Cerebro's chirping again, and you'll never in a million years guess why. Now check this out. Check this out. And stop me if you heard this one, okay? Cerebro has found a new mutant menace, which may be the greatest threat that the X-Men have ever encountered. You know, just like every time Cerebro starts to chirp. Well, I guess, I guess it's either the worst mutant menace ever, or it somehow picked up on non-mutants like the Juggernaut or El Tigre. So, I guess either way, right? From here, we shift scenes and zip over to Metro College, where Jean Grey is acting as the personal cheerleader for creepy Ted Roberts. We can see that Ted's like an all-star athlete here. He never seems to get tired, and uh, it would appear as though Jean's starting to get the hot pants for him. I mean, she's really impressed by his non-mutant abilities. And uh, Jean actually goes so far as to ask him out for an orange soda. Now, as they walk through the student center, Jean asks why Ted pushes himself so hard. And so he starts to share his tale of woe about being in his older brother's shadow for his entire life. This is thankfully interrupted by a great big explosion in the chemistry building. Now, any guesses who might have gotten caught up in that blast? Well, if you're following along, you might remember that we, uh, we met a familiar face at uh, the college last issue, and uh, it's Calvin Rankin, of course. And check this out. The big boom done gave him both his powers and his memories back. So he's pulled out of this wreckage here, and he knows that Gene's one of the X-Men, and he also knows that he's got these mimicry powers, so I guess that machine that took them away didn't actually take them away, just kind of made him forget about them? Maybe? I really... I, I, can't, I can't claim to understand the, uh, the science behind this, but uh, we'll play along. We shift our scenes over to a hidden lab, and, um, well, not just any lab, it's the lab of the Puppet Master. The Puppet Master, really? Okay. Anyway, old PM is whittling away at some cosmic clay. You see, he's looking for revenge against the X-Men for what went down back in Fantastic Four number 28, or something. Um, and we discussed Fantastic Four 28 back in episode 9 of the Essential X-Lapse, which is, as always, available in the archives. Somehow, he's aware that Professor X is in fact the leader of the X-Men, which might make him the smartest, or at least the most perceptive person in all the Marvel Universe. I'll assume I don't need to go through the whole, you know, rigmarole of how obvious it is that Xavier is a uh, part of the X-Men, or at least is uh, intimately familiar with the X-Men here. You know, like the planes take off from his yard, the helicopters take off from his yard, uh, the ice cream truck thing. I mean, we've been through this before, and I'm sure we'll be through this again, but... Puppet Master is the only one that seems to have been able to pick up on this. There you go. So it's not long before Masters has a Professor X dolly all made up. But when he attempts to control him, it doesn't work. You see, it emits some sort of electrical feedback, which tells our baddie that Xavier has erected a psychic shield in order to protect himself from any puppet penetration which sounds very disgusting. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. So old PM's going to have to try another tack here. Let's head back to the mansion. We got Chuck and the boys putting together a new piece of uh, faux Kirby tech, and it's called a multi-frequency booster, which is an adjunct to Cerebro, which will help them better pinpoint the dread mutant threat. I suppose we can think of it as a Cerebro's very own mento helmet, only that it could like fill a small gymnasium rather than just cover the dome of a creepy bald man. Professor X dismisses his charges so he can do some astral planning, 
And you see, the way he looks at it, uh, the X-Men are at their absolute weakest right now. You know, Jean's gone, Warren's on the bench, Cyclops has all but lost all of his confidence, which leaves us only Bobby and Hank, and let's face it, that ain't all that much. So, it's time for Xavier to do some recruiting. Now, the professor's first stop is somewhere in Central Europe, where he has a chat with Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Charles appeals to them for their assistance with a common threat, Pietro tells Chuck that uh, there was a time where they would have gladly taken him up on his offer, and they would have loved to have joined the X-Men, which uh, we've read all of their appearances up to this point, right? Uh, Almost. We haven't read their Avengers stuff, but when was this? (laughs) I mean, they've been asked to join the X-Men several times, and each time they said no. So uh, I don't know when uh, when this time was where they would have loved to have joined them. Anyway, the whole thing is they're Avengers now. So they're going to live and die as Avengers. And Xavier understands this. And uh, as Xavier leaves, Wanda ponders if they had made the right choice here. Our scene shifts, and it's double date time. We've got Bobby and Zelda and Vera and Hank, and it's, it's more of the same sort of stuff with this group. They stop at a hot dog stand, but Bobby's broke. Now Zelda, she says that she's a working girl, and uh, is luckily carrying her billfold. Vera is still kind of riding Hank's ass about his disappearance a few issues back. And he tries to dazzle her with his vocab, but, uh, well, she's unimpressed. She's, she's intelligent as well. Just then, there's a bank robbery. Bobby and Hank sneak away to change into their work togs, but by the time they're ready to spring into action, well, someone else has already corralled the creeps, and that is the amazing Spider-Man. Xavier, who's reading Beast and Iceman's minds, without permission, asks them to try to recruit Spidey into the X-Men. And so they attempt to. But he turns Hank and his future amazing friend down. Bobby and Hank then return to their dates, and naturally they're both ticked off. I mean, we've been here before. We know we know the deal. I mean, Zelda's just been left there holding the wainers, and Vera, I mean, she's an absolute pill at her best. So it's, uh, it's a little icy. Anyway... We jump to the next day, where uh, our heroes are loaded into the rolls and are on their way to pick Jean up from Metro. Now, she's got a teeny tiny box with her, which she says contains a surprise for the X-Men, and uh, I really can't stress enough how small this box is, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, Calvin Rankin watches from a nearby window, and he is absolutely seething, to the point where he actually heads outside to confront Professor X and his charges. And get this, Xavier actually invites Cal to come back to the mansion with them. Remember, he is recruiting, right? Now, this scene is somehow being watched by the Puppet Master. I, I couldn't tell you where his cameras are, but he is seeing it. I mean, I think that's something we're not supposed to think about with these Silver Age stories, or I guess any comic stories. Like, how do the bad guys see this? They've always got a bank of monitors, and, uh, I mean, this is before drones, so where where the hell are these cameras at? And why, why does he have cameras at a college? I don't know. Anyway, he decides that if he can't make a puppet out of the prof, well, the mighty mimic will have to do. Once back to the mansion, Cal Rankin's powers do come pouring back. Here he's got his wings, he's got his big feet. I'm guessing he can, you know, shoot ice and shoot beams. It's, you know, it's it's the mimic deal here. And also, the X-Men have new costumes. Now, these costumes are what Gene had in that teeny, tiny box, uh... I guess maybe these were unstable and shrinking molecules? I don't know. And here's the thing. They don't look all that different, to be honest. Maybe a little less yellow. Um, and they have red belts. And, and Jean has her, uh, she has her cat's, cat's eye, you know, pointy things back now. 
And I guess Jean apparently learned how to sew in home economics, which I didn't realize was a college course. Then again, I didn't know it wasn't either, so what do I know? Now at this point, Xavier and Mimic enter the room, and uh, one crazy, crazy announcement is made. Well, actually two crazy announcements are made. Not only is the Mimic officially an X-Man, well check this out, he is now the deputy leader of the team. Huh, so Cyclops has been relieved of his duties and will now have to answer to Cal Rankin in the field. Well, that's gotta suck. Anyway, back to the Puppet Master, who is still somehow watching the scene play out. Again, I couldn't begin to tell you where these cameras are hidden. I don't know. Anyway, by now, he has already crafted a Mimic doll, which springs him into action against the rest of the X-Men. And this leads us to the battle that we already saw at the start of the issue. And uh, Stan drops a footnote asking us to reread those first five pages, but I'll spare you. We don't need to do that again. Suffice it to say, next thing we know, the Mimic is stood triumphant. Professor X telepathically tells him that he's being controlled by another, but Cal ain't buying it, because he's nobody's stooge, you see. The Mimic then leaves the mansion, citing that he needs some air. Speaking of air, the X-Men follow him via the X-Copter. That, I mean, I don't have to remind you, took off from Professor Xavier's backyard, right? Oh, and Xavier's also figured out that it's the Puppet Master doing all the hoodoo, uh, so they at least know who the big bad is. I don't know how he figured this out, but he did. We rejoin Cal as he's hovering nearby, and while he has no love for the X-Men, he wonders why he just started the fight with them. Is he being controlled? Huh. Back at the mansion, the angel has begun to stir, and he wanders out to the main room to ask the, prof- the professor what all the hubbub is about. Xavier tells him to get back to bed, but, well, nothing's going to stop Warren from helping out his teammates. He drives away in his hoopty to chase down that X-Copter. Now, speaking of the chopper, it's, it's landed by a half-hidden viaduct, which they somehow know is where Puppet Master is hiding out. And in, in fairness, I guess Xavier did track PM's brainwaves to pinpoint his location. Anyway, our heroes enter the secret lab only to find themselves attacked by an incredible, but not awesome, android. And just like many of the baddies the X-Men have fought of late, this one seems to be immune to all of their powers. You see Cyclops' beams bounce right back at him. The beast's body uh, bounces back at them. Jean can't TK it. And Bobby resorts to Iceman Plan A, which is encasing the baddie in ice, which, of course, it breaks out of in the very next panel. Cyclops winds up zapping the floor beneath the android, which is kind of taking a page out of Bobby's book. You know, Plan B, icing up the floor. Uh, This sends it falling to uh, whatever underground level is under the underground level that they're already on. Okay. The X-Men then confront the Puppet Master, who is wielding his Cal Rankin dolly. And then the Mimic appears, claiming that he won't go easy on the X-Men this time. You see, this time's for keeps. Luckily, it's here where Warren shows up. And he dives at the Puppet Master, grabs the Cal Rankin puppet, and smashes it to bits. Well, he kind of just falls on top of it, which smashes it, but, uh, you know, the end justified the means, I guess. We wrap up with the Mimic having an existential crisis... Uh, He realizes that he is a man condemned to never be his own self. He'll always be in the shadow of others, people who actually have powers of their own. And that, my friends, is where we leave it. Next time out, we're going to meet one of the more enduring characters of the Silver Age, someone that we still see to this very day, Sean Cassidy the Banshee. But we'll worry about him next time. For now, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the reemergence of the mighty menace of the Mimic. I tell you, this was a good issue. This was a fun issue. Maybe 
confusingly told. Um, the bouncing around, uh, that, that kind of... I don't want to say it took me out of it because it didn't, but um, I think it could have been told a little bit, uh, a little bit more linearly, <laughs> if linearly is even a word. Uh, I'm not keen on the Puppet Master being the big bad here. Of all the you know underwhelming villains in the Marvel universe, especially of uh, I, I guess we would call Puppet Master not 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 exactly an A tier villain, but uh, certainly not. Certainly not the, uh, you know, the porcupine of the plant man. He's, you know, in maybe a B-level uh, villain here. That said, among the B-villains of the Marvel Universe, Puppet Master might be, uh, at least to me, one of the more boring. Anytime I would start, uh, you know, a Fantastic Four reading project, I would always kind of glaze over the Puppet Master issues. Just doesn't do anything for me here. I, I suppose... We needed him here to uh, facilitate the fight between the X-Men and the Mimic. I, I don't know why we necessarily needed a fight between them, but uh, I guess we did. I guess we did. It, it allowed for uh, Cal Rankin to have the uh, revelation at the end there, which I can't remember if they're actually going to do anything with. Like, uh, I mean, we know Cal Rankin, and we know him as kind of a jerk. That's basically his his gimmick here. He's kind of a... Kind of a Silver Age Guy Gardner in a way, where you know he's very very powerful, but he's just uh, he's an abrasive sort, and he's got a big ego, and he's just he's just not pleasant. He does have a better haircut than Guy Gardner though, so we'll we'll give him that. But here we're getting a little bit of depth, you know. He's realizing that he really isn't he he really isn't his own guy. His powers are literally reliant on others being in his proximity here, so he depends on being around other people in order to have any sort of extra human powers. I mean, he's, I don't think he's a mutant at this point. I think, I think technically in the current year stuff he is a mutant. I know it's gone back and forth probably more times than Polaris being Magneto's daughter has gone back and forth with uh, whether or not the Mimic's powers are mutant in origin or not, but... Uh, here it would appear that uh, he's beginning to come to grips with the fact that outside of what he can do with other people's powers, he really isn't all that special in and of himself. He has nothing extra to offer outside of what those around him can already offer. And from being inside the Mimic's head, we know that he is, uh, he's got quite the ego on him. So the revelation here that he's not exactly self-made... Well, that could do a number on someone's, uh, you know, feelings of self-efficacy and whatnot. So, I, I like the I like the direction we're headed here. Um, this is uh, very much entering into the the soapy era. Well, maybe not the soapy era, but a soapier era where we're gonna get uh, more into the heads of our characters and maybe focus a little bit more on the interpersonals than the you know biff bang boom you know punch a bad guy sort of thing. Though of course there will be plenty of that as well. And now, as we have the uh, Mimic in a new role where, that he's going to have to grow into as field leader, well, we also have a former field leader that has to grow and evolve into a uh, lesser role. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing to follow in the next uh, several issues here. We know that Scott's having a bit of a crisis, right? Um, even going as far as to doubt his own heroism. He wonders if he is a uh, detriment on in the field now. You know, he did optic blast Warren and... He's not entirely sure whether or not that was an accident. So I think this is a uh, necessary thing for Scott to have to step down, especially since, I mean, Xavier is reading everybody's minds uh, without permission, of course. So he knows exactly where everybody's head's at and where their heads aren't. 
So I look forward to seeing Scott in the position where he's going to have to take orders from, well, the Mimic, a man that uh, none of the uh, team really cares for, and uh, I don't know that any of them really trust, so... I think we're in for some interesting times ahead. And I tell you what, I'm just happy that we're out of the, uh, you know, the plant man, porcupine, um, unicorn era for now. So maybe we'll get some more uh, semi-seminal X-Men stories moving forward. In any event, and overall, I, I did very much enjoy this issue. I feel like Roy Thomas might be getting his, uh, might be getting his land legs on the X-Men right now. He's getting more comfortable with the characters and might have a... Uh, a more focused vision for where he wants to take the team and where he wants to take the book. So I'm very happy about that, and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing more like this. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about the issue itself. So uh, how about we hop into uh, the little uh, ditty we call the mutant mailbag here. We're going to check out the letters from, uh, you know, mid to late 1966 here. We're going to start with James in Michigan. Now, he was inspired to write in to point out some mistakes that he found in X-Men number 23. And, uh, oh boy, are you ready for this? Now, James points out that uh, the general that we saw on page 3 was uh, adorned in his appropriate attire, however, is misuniformed for the rest of the mag. Hmm. The captain that we see in this issue is wrongly insignia'd. Uh, he's depicted as having gold bars when he should have silver. And also, Count Nefaria's ransom was said to have to go through Senate, when in reality, it should have had to go through the House. But other than that, he really liked it. Um, now, he wants a true origin story for the X-Men as well. And uh, Stan, he replies to say he'll slap Warner's wrists for all the military boners. Um, and regarding the Senate, well, he passes that one over to rascally Roy to answer that. And Roy says the following. Nowhere in the story does it even remotely hint that the Senate is involved. It mentions only Congress and or a committee, which could be either house. The man who gives the money to Angel is addressed as Congressman, i.e. a member of the House of Representatives. Now you see, Roy was a social science and history major in college, and unlike Stan, he does not take kindly to being corrected. <laughs> We're going to see more of that as we work our way through. Roy, uh... He might take it a little too personally here. He doesn't really have fun with the letters like Stan does. And uh, your humble host did actually double-check the issue in question, and Roy is right. He never said anything about Senate in those pages. Next up, we got Guy in California writing in his third letter. And Guy is just full of love for Roy Thomas. He refers to him as Fandom's Golden, golden Boy, and traces his steps from letter hack to fanziner to now a pro in his own right. And he thought the Locust issue was the best one to date. Really, man? Come on. Uh, he loves that Roy is bringing the Gene-Scott relationship back and says that he can personally relate to Scott's woe. Uh, not, that, not that he's in love with a 2D comic book heroine or anything. Um, and he makes sure to say that, which... What's that thing about protesting too much? Mm, I think Guy doth. Stan replies... Uh, to state that maybe he's now a little bit worried that old Scott's got yet another rival for the affections of young Ms. Gray, which I wonder how Guy took that as a reply. Um, next up, we got Steve in Michigan, who absolutely loved X-Men number 24, to which I repeat, really, dude? Really? Uh, he thinks Roy and Werner are great, says the Locust is great, but wonders how he suddenly regained his sanity, and he cites Beast as his favorite X-Man. And Stan replies by crying that nobody ever tells the editor that they love their work. 
So, I mean, Samantha Fox once said that uh, naughty girls need love, too. And I guess so do editors. Editors need love, too. Next up, Barbara in Illinois. She'd like Jean to show more independence. She really seems to have the hot pants for Warren, claiming that he is, quote, her kind of guy. And she says she likes him three times, uh, the last time in all caps. So she really, really digs Warren. Now, she says she can relate to Jean, as uh, she's the only girl fencer on the University of Chicago's fencing team. Now, Stan suggests that uh, the only girl fencer in Chicago might be a great idea for a superhero, or a contestant on What's My Line. Next, we got Joe in Connecticut, and he comes to us from the Corrections Department. Issue 24, page 18, panel 1. Beast says to the Locust, Stick around for a short tete-a-tete, that means heart-to-heart talk if you're behind on your French lessons. Now, Joe says tete-a-tete doesn't mean heart-to-heart, it means head-to-head. And he asks for a no prize in French for pointing this out. Now, Stan corrects Joe by saying tete-a-tete should be hyphenated, because uh, Joe did not hyphenate. And he also says while it literally means head-to-head, it can mean a conversation between two people, ergo a heart-to-heart chat. Which, uh, Roy, Roy the boy here does not like being corrected, does he? <laughs> you know, I gotta imagine that had Stan written this, he would have probably just taken it on the chin, right? He would have just been like, oops, you know, I don't know French. Uh, oh, I only took Latin in school and I only got, you know, three months in. Roy, mm, he, you know, there's no water off a, a duck's back with Roy. He, uh, he does not like being corrected. Michael in NYC does not want Gene to go to college. He doesn't want Gene to be hanging out with creepy Ted Roberts. He loved seeing Xavier in metal leg braces. He says the Locust went down too easily. And he says to make his marvel until Beast gets a hangnail. And uh, Stan suggests that Gene could probably TK a hangnail right out of Hank's foot. So um, (laughs) that's that. Um, Finally, we have Patricia in California. Now, she was worried about Gene leaving the team until she saw Ted Roberts. And she hopes we see a lot more of him. She says that he <laughs> he resembles Bobby Drake with his high cheekbones. Okay. Um, now, she would also like to see more of Zelda and Bernard the Poet. Uh, poor Vera doesn't get a mention, nor should she, because she's the worst. Uh, she also seems to have the hot pants for Angel, but uh, calls herself Fickle. Now, Stan says that the tawdry taint of fickleness shall ne'er besmirch her good name with him. And I tell you, I need to uh, integrate the, uh, the statement tawdry taint of into my, uh, into my vocabulary from this point on, because, I mean, that's a winner right there, isn't it? But those are the letters. Uh, let's flip back a few pages and check out the bullpen bulletins, also known as pulse-pounding pronouncements, passionately philosophical, preposterously profound, and particularly prepared for permanent oblivion. I'm surprised I'm able to get through these, uh, you know, alliterative subtitles for the bullpen page here without uh, too much, (laughs) too much trouble. I could barely get through, like, a line of the script, you know, just dialogue, uh, but here I'm able to do something. Anyway, item. Stan talks about the realities of publishing time. Now, he says that he's writing this bulletin three months before the reader will see it. And he also uses this to plug the Marvel animated series, as when he's writing this, they haven't yet aired, but by the time we're reading these words, they've already been out. And I guess that's especially true for us in current year, because we're reading it now and those, you know, those things are ancient. Anyway, item, and it's a letter from Neil in Brooklyn. 
and Stan's publishing it here as it's a question that he gets all the time. Now, it's about how Stan goes about selecting which letters to publish. Stan passes the blame, or the buck, I guess. He says that fabulous Flo Steinberg is responsible for picking the proper letters. Now, she gives them to Stan, who responds, gives them back to Flo to type them up, and that's that. Also, did you know, the Marvel bullpen reads 200 to 500 letters every day and has to select about a half dozen to include in each mag. So, uh, it's a lot of letters. A lot of letters that don't make it, and... Considering how some how dumb some of the letters are that do make it, could you imagine the ones that don't? Oof. Item, there's some Marvel brouhaha and goings-on on campus. The Stanford University Merry Marvel Marches have collected several hundred bucks for charity. Trinity College reprinted some Marvel art in their school magazine. Rensselaer Polytech crafted a nine-foot picture of Thor. And also, at their Bow Arts Ball, there were several Marvel cosplayers. We see Spider-Man, Black Panther, the Fantastic Four, and an Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Students at Colorado State gave their professor a Spidey t-shirt, which one day he actually wore to class. Shimer College broadcasted some Marvel info on their airwaves, and WESU-FM at Wesleyan U is planning on a Marvel audio drama. Which, you know what? That, that kind of sounds like fun. Maybe, uh... If I can ever figure out how to coordinate things, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll work on a Marvel audio drama here on the, uh, on the channel. Uh, next item, uh, some new members to the bullpen. We got Jim Steranko, and Stan touts him as a great talent and also a skilled liberationist. And uh, that's an escape artist to, uh, you know, I was going to say to the uh, layman, but I, I guess that's probably to all of us. We got Mori Kuramoto. Now, he joins the production staff. He's a great letterer and a watercolor artist. And we got Ron White. He's an editorial helpmate and a recipient of the Fellowship to the Yale Drama School. So welcome. Welcome one and all. The next item, more Marvel Press. The New Guard June 1966 issue published by the Young Americans for Freedom chatted up Mighty Marvel. And I tried searching for this online but could not find it. Um, I think the New Guard is something that's still in uh, publication to this very day, but their archives are spotty at best. I think I found a copy of it on eBay, but uh, it was nowhere online for me just to check out a few pages of, unfortunately. Our final item, um, uh, it starts with a question that I have for you. Uh, anyone else tired of, re- of talking about radio DJs who enjoy comic books? Well, <laughs> buckle up, buttercups, because we got us five more. Rick Stevens of WONE Dayton, Don Kennedy of KS- KISN Portland, Kings Bornick, of WRIT Milwaukee, Reg Cordick of KNX Los Angeles, and Rick Snyder of WTRY Troy, New York. Welcome to the ranks of Merry Marvel Marchingdom. Um, and we also have here a note that the Merry Marvel Marcher with the quickest lips and fastest gums is Gary Stevens of WMCA New York, and uh, I don't want to know how... Uh, I don't know if there. I don't want to know if there was a test to find out who had the quickest lips and the fastest gums. I really didn't know there was a talent element to uh, to Mary Marvel marching, but uh, we'll ju- we'll just leave that one alone and head into our mighty, mighty, mighty Marvel checklist here. We got Fantastic Four number fifty eight, in which Doctor Doom defeats the Fantastic Four. Spider Man number forty four features the return of the Lizard. Avengers number thirty five features a big change for Goliath and also the final fate of the Living Laser. Daredevil number 23 has Daredevil versus the Gladiator, and I feel like we already read that one. 
Thor number 135 features the origin of the high evolutionary, so bring a pillow and a blanket. Strange Tales number 152, in it, S.H.I.E.L.D. does something cool, and Doctor Strange does something mysterious. Tales of Suspense 85, Iron Man vs. the Mandarin, again! Captain America vs. Batroc, again! Tales to Astonish 87, Submariner is still fighting Krang, and uh, Hulk is fighting the Hulk Killer. Sergeant Fury number 37, it's Howlers vs. Nazis, again! Uh, Marvel Collector's Item Classics number 6, reprints. Fantasy Masterpieces number 5, more reprints. And uh, Marvel Tales number 6, stop me if you heard this one, reprints. Let's wrap up our look at the book with a little bit of a Merry Marvel marching here. We've got 26 new marchers, and uh, none of them, none of them really stand out. Uh, you know how Marvel's going to be on TV, right? Well, that's not just in the United States of America, but uh, they've gone international. We've got some television coverage in Caracas, Venezuela, Tokyo, Japan, Buenos Aires, Argentina, Montevideo, Uruguay, and Sydney and Melbourne, Australia, but still not in Phoenix, Arizona. Hmm. Oh, well. Uh, new t-shirts. New t-shirts here for the Marchers. We got Doctor Strange, Incredible Hulk, The Avengers, Daredevil, Spider-Man, Iron Man, X-Men, The Howling Commandos, Fantastic Four, and Thor, the, uh, the most dramatic hero in the Marvel Universe. And you can get that for $1.60 plus a quarter. Well, that's our book from Soup to Nuts. Uh, how about we hop into some shout-outs here? This is me saying a special thank you to folks on social media who engaged and uh, helped to signal boost this little program here to spread the word. So over on Twitter, I want to thank Walt Nealon, Dave Schultz, the Between the Pages blog, Jeremiah, Jesse DeYoung, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Pat Sampson, The Long Box Crusade, Jason Colby, and The Scary Stuff Podcast. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Billy D, Andrew Franklin, Pat Sampson, Jesse DeYoung, and Walt Neeland. Thank you all so much for helping to spread the word and to lift the profile of this uh, little nothing-happening program here. Um, Speaking of thank yous, I want to thank the lovely supporters over at patreon.com slash xlapsed here. We are up to ten patrons, and uh, boy, that's uh, ten more than I thought I'd ever have. So thank you all so much. I want to thank uh, Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, and I'd like to welcome Mark Jagger. And I tell you, your support means the world to me. So thank you all so much for believing in me and joining me on this little creative journey through uh, X-Men history and comics history. Now, if anyone out there wants to talk X-Men history or comics history, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm very easy to find, and I'm usually very receptive when I'm not sitting in a dentist chair or on an airplane. So, uh, you can find me several different ways. On Twitter, you can find me at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could also join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for the uh, complete audio archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and you could find that on any application or device that you uh, usually find noise and or sound on. And, of course, you could find us at patreon.com slash xlapsed. A lot of exclusive uh, content there, a lot of first-run content there, so having a really good time with that. Um, it's honestly so much fun to be able to kind of spread the wings a little bit and to share some things that... 
maybe wouldn't quite fit on the main feed or on the main site. So it's a, it's pretty cool to be able to explore some uh, new avenues of content creation over there. But anyway, it's probably time for me to quit yammering and let you all get on with the rest of your day. So I will leave it with one more thank you for allowing me to reside in your ear for 30-odd minutes on this day. And until next time, as always, I'll be talking to you again real soon. See ya!